Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 256. Will the Real Buddha Please Stand Up? This week, we're joined by scholar John Peacock to discuss how the Buddha and his teachings are described in the earliest Buddhist writings. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Hokai Sobol hosting this show, and I'm delighted to be joined by John Peacock. Thank you, John, for... uh, taking the time to join us. That's fine. That's nice of you to invite me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Now, just as a brief introduction to our uh, listeners, John Peacock is uh, both an academic and a Buddhist practitioner for nearly 40 years. Uh, He was initially trained in the Tibetan Gelukpa tradition in India and subsequently spent time in uh, Sri Lanka studying Theravada. He has lectured in uh, Buddhist studies at the University of Bristol, but at present uh, he's Associate uh, Director of Oxford Mindfulness Center and teaches on the Master of Studies program in MBCT at Oxford University. He has been teaching meditation for over 25 years and is a Gaia House guiding teacher. So, John, uh, let us plunge together. Uh, into the interview, uh, okay. you you have been focusing on early Buddhism lately, very much. That's right. Yes, the fo- really the focus of my both my practice and academic work has been looking at early Buddhism over the well quite a number of years now, probably about the last fifteen years overall. Okay, so how how would you define the early teachings or the early Buddhism? What are we talking about? Is it just a specific historical period or is it also a specific layer of teachings at their very early stage of development? It's it, it's in a sense it's both because it's um the historical period in the sense that it's what I call pre-sectarian Buddhism. Okay. It's the Buddhism that's prior to the growth of any of the traditions that we know and certainly prior to the growth of you know, what many consider to be the earliest tradition, but isn't actually really quite the case, which is Theravada. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at a strata, which is post the Buddha's death, but prior probably to the Second Buddhist Council, which occurs approximately sort of 60 to 100 years after the Buddha's death. Okay. Okay. So probably I would suppose that what we find there is, is significantly different than any of the codified versions of the teaching that developed later on, but we also find a different Buddha there, right? Yes, I think that's, for me, that's one of the key factors. We find uh, a historical figure. We find somebody who walked and talked and lived and breathed as opposed to a sort of figurehead. Uh, And certainly anything that's become um, associated with later Buddhism, where the Buddha has become much more deified in a sense. Okay, so first first of all, a more personal question. This comes up frequently for me when I study the scriptures. How reliable are Buddhist scriptures as historical documents, even if we look just at the Pali Canon? Okay, well, let, let, let's um, reserve our focus for the Pali Canon, because that's really, as I say, um, represents in many ways the, the documentary evidence of early Buddhism. Perfect. 
What we've got is, is obviously something which has uh, grown up over um, quite a number of years, and it's, it's something which is not written down until you know, approximately you know, three to four hundred years after the Buddha's death. Mm-hmm. So it's primarily an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, things are being codified, things are being um, systematized in a particular way to make them, in a sense, transferable knowledge to others. So, um, in terms of the historical veracity of this material, some of it, I think, is very, very old. Um, mm. we've, got certain, you know, we've got certain portions of the canon, which I think most scholars uh, these days appreciate as being some of the oldest strata of the canon, and probably very, very close to, what, you know, to things that the Buddha actually taught. Would you say it's uh, Sutta Nipata and texts like that? It's most definitely the Sutta Nipata. The Sutta Nipata is, is um, one of the oldest, but not the whole text. Okay. There are certain texts within the Sutta Nipata. Um, there's the, um, the Atakavaga, for example, the section mm-hmm. 8, mm-hmm. which is considered to be very old, and the Kalgavasana Sutta, which is the one of the rhinoceros horn. Okay. Now, these are very, very ancient. The meters that are used are very, very old in them because, as probably you know, these are poetic forms. Mm. Mm. Um, so this is a very old strata of the canon. Some, something that's come to the fore very much over the last five years or so is obviously um, the sutta, which I think is, is usually translated as the Noble Search sutta, which is in the, in the middle-length discourses, the Arya Pariyasana sutta. Mm-hmm. And that also looks to be very old because it's the Buddha giving personal information about his own training. Okay, yeah. good. But I would, I would guess there are also extra-canonical sources, like perhaps the texts of other uh, Indian traditions and also certain archaeological findings that help us in creating a, a more reliable picture. It is. It's, it's, a mix, it's a very mixed picture because you're having to use an awful lot of different forms of evidence to actually substantiate what was going on in India at this period. Mm-hmm. Indians have never been particularly interested in history yeah. um, in the Western sense. They've got no figure within, say, for example, Indian, um, Indian literature like Herodotus in the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've got nobody who's, in a sense, the founder of a historical tradition here. Okay. So we're using, you know, for example, epigraphical evidence off of um, statuary and things that are being found, obviously Ashokan edicts. Um, which are there, and also the philological evidence coming out of the text and the early study of the languages. Okay, perfect. So it's, it's, it's using quite a lot to try and create a picture of what was actually going on in the Buddha's time. Okay, so mostly it's a, it's a, it's a free-flowing picture that is that, that that is yet to be found in some uh, precise detail, right? It is in many in many ways. Where you know, Buddhist studies in this sense is in its infancy because you know what was going on in say I don't know biblical studies you know, in the nineteenth century, where we're just about getting there. <laughs> okay, good. So. Going down to the bone, what is early Buddhism? What do we find there? What are the main features? Okay, what do we find there? Well, obviously referring back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is we find a historical Buddha. Okay. We find somebody who's flesh and blood. Yes. Um, somebody who's not deified, somebody who's far distant from these visions that you get in later Mahayana Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he gets ill, um, he has a sense of humor, <laughs> He does all the sort of things you'd expect from a, a teacher. He changes his mind as well. Okay. At times. Yes. Um, the teachings, as you can see, as you if you plow your way through the canon, evolve. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, yeah, they're, they're not chronological, but you can at least see an evolution of the teaching. 
uh, in the way that he's describing it. So from that early text that we referred to earlier on, the, the Sutanabhata, mm-hmm. what we find is something completely unsystematized there. Mm. Um, it's, very, it's a very interesting text. So for example, you go to that text, you look in it, and some of the things you'd expect to see there because they're so Buddhist in a sense, you know, like the yeah. Four Noble Truths and Dependent Origination, none of those are there. Yeah, it's okay. certainly not in the oldest portions. Yes. Yes. What you find instead, for example, in the Parayana Vaga, which is the, one of the other oldest portions of it, is an intense dialogue about meditation in comparison with the Brahminical traditions of the time. Okay. So he's intensely engaging with questions that he's being asked by meditators from other traditions. Mm-hmm. And distinguishing what's going on in Buddhist meditation from what's going on in you know, what later becomes the Vedantic traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly those based on the Upanishads. So we're getting a very, very different picture. Um, also, that text gives us pre-settled Buddhism. Yes. There are no monasteries. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, I always find a very amusing one, which is actually in the Kagavasana Sutta, which is this, um, the, the rhinoceros one. He says, you know, monks shouldn't even travel together. They're just like um, bracelets on a woman's wrist. They jangle. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's very much a solitary mendicant tradition at this period. Okay, so, so, so I would guess also that, that at this period there are a lot of divergent versions of what arises also among the monks, right? Well, there are, because there's the attempt by some of the followers to kind of bring what the Buddha's teaching back in line with Brahmanical teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we find often, you know, the, you know, the Buddha criticizing some of his monks who just, he, you know, he said, oh, misguided man, <laughs> you know, yeah. this is not what I teach. Mm. So you find this attempt to steer it back to this traditionalism, mm-hmm. which obviously mm-hmm. the Buddha is trying to break away from. He's actually trying to break away from religion mm. at this stage. Mm. So we could say that then the Buddha was very much a revolutionary of sorts, at least a, a, a radical philosophical and spiritual teacher. Yes, I, I would wouldn't hesitate to say that you know, in, in um, agreeing with that because. Um, the Buddha is actually far more radical, and the picture we get of him through these early texts is far more radical than, for example, the figure who we've received um, in later Buddhism, mm. who in some ways has been slightly tamed mm. uh, and traditionalized and made religious again. Mm. Now, when we look at these early texts, one of the big things, I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, one of the things we find um, is, is a social critic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this intense engagement with his own society, whereby he is, you know, um, even using language in a, in a completely different way, language which is familiar to all these people, and turning it on its head. Well, this sounds very important because we know that later on in the history of Buddhism, the Dharma was uh, often used as a social reinforcement. That's right. As a, as, a, as a conventional system of reinforcing power and reinforcing political order. Yeah. And here we find the founder actually questioning the basis of uh, Indian society of, of that time, right? That's right. It's a very, very radical engagement with it. And in many ways, the middle way um, that Buddha teaches could be described as a middle way between two major religious traditions. And it's a middle way between Brahmanism, which is associated around the household life, mm-hmm. and the middle way steering itself away from Jainism mm. as well, which is extremely ascetically based. 
this this leads me to another uh, question, which which seems obvious. We we often focus on the Buddha as a spiritual and philosophical figure, but it would seem that he was also very much interested in organizing a different kind of uh, impetus in social terms and also of uh, being very aware how important it was to organize a different kind of community. Yes, yeah, that's very much the case. I mean, if we look, for example, the structure, the early structure of the Sangha, as it's seen in the Vinaya, in the, mm. in the book, you know, the seven books, the six books of the Vinaya, what we find in the, in the Vinaya is um, a society which is structured around republicanism. Okay. Um, very much the sort of inheritance that the Buddha would have had from his own upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know where he was brought up in Kapalavatu would have been a very much a tribal republican basis for government. Mm-hmm. So there's no central head at all. There's, you know, again, this has changed through the history of Buddhism because you know in Thailand now we have a Sangha Raja, head of the Sangha. Mm. Um, whereas early Buddhism again, you do not have a head. Mm. Yeah, it's it's basically the you know if we take Theravada, it's a doctrine of the elders. Mm-hmm. So the society um, that the Buddha is creating around his monks is very, very reflective of how he wants to see a society run. Okay. Okay. So tell us more about the Buddha, uh, about the about the uh, human personality. What what kind of man do we find? What kind of man do we find? I think we we a we find somebody who is intensely, as I say, engaged with the society. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's primarily an ethicist. Um, as well as a social reformer, I think the two go hand in hand. So there's, he's not really what I call this, he's not a religious leader in that sense of the mm. way that you know we talk about spiritual teachers and that in the modern world. Yeah, he's somebody who is deeply, deeply concerned about inequities in his society. Mm. He's deeply concerned about bringing ethics to the forefront of human concerns. Mm-hmm. Everything that he teaches is practical. Mm. You know, going back to your very early question about what is early Buddhism, mm. it's very practical. It's mm-hmm. not philosophical. It's actually, um, if you want to kind of use philosophical terms, the Buddha is much more of an epistemologist. He's much more interested in knowledge and how things work than he ever is in ontologies. Okay. He's not interested in you know, whether something is real in the big sense of you know, capital R. Mm-hmm. What he's interested in is how things work and how, if you like, um, human beings manage to get themselves into the mess they do. Mm. And how to take themselves out. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, one of the claims I often make, I mean, particularly in Oxford these days, teaching primarily people like clinical psychologists and psychiatrists, yeah. is the Buddha is the first psychologist. Mm. Yeah, he, he's deeply interested in the mind and how the mind works. And you know, you've only got to go to those opening lines of the Dhammapada. You know, um, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so, dependent on how that mind is, depends on how we view the world and you know, the, the creation of you know, the problems we have or the lessening of them. Okay, that sounds that sounds very very useful. Now, you were mentioning humor. Yeah. Uh, that is often absent from the Buddhist. Uh, tradition <laughs> apart from <laughs> uh, yes from it but uh, e- even as we practice it these days humor is often you know uh, seen as something weird yeah uh, now give us some examples of buddha's humor okay let me give you one um 
Well, as you probably know, and I'm, I'm not going to mince my words here, the, the Buddha is an atheist. Okay. <laughs> I mean, people like to fudge it and say he's a non-theist. I don't think so. I think he's an atheist. Okay. Yeah, he's got no time for a creator god whatsoever. And in yeah. a very famous sutta, which is usually, again, again translated as the threefold knowledge, the Tivija Sutta. Tivija, yeah. Yeah, which is in the, in the long discourses. Yes. We find, I think, a typical example of... of of satire and parody. And this is the, if you like some of the humorous tropes that he uses, is very much satirical. Mm. Um, so we find an example there when he's talking about a creator God. And mm. he's saying, isn't it a bit like this if you're looking for a creator God? Um, isn't it like being in love with the most beautiful girl in the world? And somebody says to you, well, do you know her name? And uh. you go, no. <laughs> <laughs> do you know where she lives? And then you answer, well, no. Uh, do you know what her relatives are called? Um, no. And there's a whole list of questions like this. And he just says at the end of this, and don't you think somebody who is saying these things, don't they turn out to be rather stupid? <laughs> you know, so he's equating this, you know, uh, with, with a futile search for something you can't possibly know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And there are many examples like that where the Buddha is using satire and is often actually parodying things within, again, the early Indian systems, for example, mm. elements of the Rig Veda and elements of the Upanishads. Mm. Um, we find parody very much at the forefront. And the one thing, actually, this is something, not something I said, but something that um, the scholar Richard Gombrich once said, which is, you know, the, the jokes are probably very genuine because mm -hmm. actually uh, jokes are not made by committees. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're individual mm. uh, very much and so when we look and we find this humor within the text you know, if you're talking about the historical Buddha we've probably got something very close to what he said oh good good okay so on the on the other hand could we say something about Buddha's character mm -hmm. I think again uh, this takes uh, quite a deep engagement with the early text to discover this but when you mm. When you start to look at these early texts, and primarily, obviously, here we're talking about the Pali Canon, mm. what you find is somebody, and again, Suttanapata, somebody who's telling you about the impetus for their own journey. Mm. Um, again, this is in the Attica Varga, it's in the mm -hmm. section of the Eights in the Attica Varga, where he's saying, um, you know, I look around and I see people... He says, basically like fish in shallow water, flopping around. Mm. Yeah, he sees enmity. He mm -hmm. says, I look for somewhere safe to be in this world with all this enmity and with this sort of, um, you know, this, with this kind of agitation that's there in the world, and I find no place that I can call home. And then he says, and I think it's a very powerful passage, and I, I'd recommend any of your listeners to actually go to this passage and have a look at it, because he says, and then I, despise, I, then I look at people and I see buried in their hearts um, a bard, like a fishhook. Mm. And he said, it's this, and of course this is, this is a synonym for craving that he's talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said, when this is removed, that's the, the running around and the exhaustion that inevitably accompanies all the running around ceases. And what I always find when I written, you know, in fact, I was doing this last weekend, I was reading this passage to a group, and you, can, you, you get a really tangible sense of somebody who's really revealing 
the impetus behind their own journey. Uh, you know, the initial, um, the, the, the thing that kickstarts them into wanting to go into this journey. So we find somebody who's, who's you know, deeply, deeply concerned about the enmity in the world. He's deeply concerned about the inequities mm-hmm. that, that he finds within the world. And he redefines the notion of what a Brahmin is. Mm. You know, who's considered to be the, the top dog of Indian society. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find, we've talked already, we find somebody who's humorous. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Somebody, somebody who can get angry at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah? We, we, we find that in some time, you know, there's, a, there's a particular sutra in the, in the middle length of some discourses where, for example, where the Buddha says, sometimes I have to speak harshly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. it's, it's actually on a discourse on right speech, and, and normally, of course, the, the, one of the images that's come down to us of the Buddha uh, as a figure is, of course, somebody who is always deeply, deeply speaking compassionately. Mm-hmm. Now, that might be the case, but it doesn't necessarily equate with being softly. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So there is something there is something very personal and very human also at the at the basis of his impetus. That's right. And, and that's one of the things I find that's so heartening about looking at this early material. And I, again, I would encourage people to go and look for themselves, is that you do find something, somebody in a sense that you can identify with much, much more readily than this totemic figure um, mm. that we often yes. see in later Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. And also find a, find a new sort of regard and respect, right? Absolutely. Um, that's certainly the case for myself. You know, um, you know, I have a deep, deep respect for this person. Um, I recently um, was conducting the tricycle tour around India. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I look at the enormous distances he walked between yeah. some of these, you know, these sites which are associated with his life. Yeah. And he was traversing backwards and forwards. And he was doing this into his 80s. Wow. Yeah. Um, Amazing. And that's another aspect I find that um, really resonates with myself anyway. That, for example, he is somebody who gets sick, he does get old, and he does die. Mm. Yeah, and towards the end of his life, he's even joking about his decrepitude. <laughs> yeah, he's saying, he said, you know, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, again in the long discourses, he's saying yeah, that the Tathagata, which is how he always refers to himself, he says, the Tathagata is just like an old cart. He can only be kept going each day by being strapped up. <laughs> you know, so he's actually, he, he's actually um, trying to make everybody aware of their human condition. And I think this is one of the things for me that's so powerful about early Buddhism. It's not about becoming something like some kind of superman. It's becoming the owner of the human condition and really confronting living that humanity. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. 
For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.